Bringing Up Baby, The Wizard of Oz, Casablanca, Psycho, The Manchurian Candidate, The Shining, Friday the 13th, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Untouchables, The Silence of the Lambs, The Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, The Ring, Crouching Tiger, Hayden Dragon, Inception. On the face of it, these movies have nothing in common. But if we were to list them differently, so we focus not on their titles, but instead on the intercostal clavicle, the ruby slippers, the letters of transit, the envelope stuffed with $40,000, the Queen of Hearts playing card, the Adler Universal 39 typewriter, the ice hockey mask, the Ark of the Covenant, the bookkeeper's ledger, the death's head moth, the rock hammer, the briefcase, the VHS cassette, the sword and the dreidel. What unites them now is that they each have objects, appliances or items crucial to their respective story. With so far as Psycho and Pulp Fiction, they aren't so much objects as they are MacGuffins. Hitchcock's trick, where an article appears to draw out the story, but really as it unfolds, these inanimate items fade in importance to the point that they are really little more than props. Made in 1941, the Maltese Falcon works in the opposite direction. It stars Humphrey Bogart as Detective Sam Spade, who is hired by fretful Ruth Wonderly, played by Mary Astor, to find her sister Corrine. Only it turns out Ruth's sister Corrine has nothing to do with anything. And Ruth isn't even Ruth. She's really Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Who killed Thursby? Your enemies or his? I don't know. His, I suppose. I'm afraid. I, I don't know. Ah, this is hopeless. If I don't know what you want done, I don't even know if you know what you want done. You won't go to the police. Go to them. All I gotta do is stand still and they'll be swarming all over me. All right, I'll tell them all I know and you'll have to take your chances. In other words, nothing is what it seems. And it is only 24 minutes into the picture. And please bear in mind that this movie runs for 100 minutes. That any reference at all is made to the object of the title. Then it is only 15 minutes from the end that we finally set eyes on the prized Maltese Falcon. After that, it's barely out of our sight, and by the final frames, the much-coveted bird comes to resemble another object in another great film, also released in 1941. Thinking of Kane's sled, now think of Blade Runner and the Unicorn, or Memento and the Polaroids. We see that these objects not only retain their importance right through to the end, but by the end, we realise that they actually hold the meaning of the film. Kane's sled is innocence, Deckard's unicorn, identity, and Leonard's Polaroid's memory. As for the Maltese falcon, the black bird represents greed, and all the vices, sins and crimes committed in the pursuit of securing the small statue. But the one person who doesn't care about the bird, but who is not greedy and commits no crime, is Detective Sam Spade. Help me, Mr. Spade. I need help so badly. I have no right to ask you. I know I haven't, but I do ask you. Help me. You won't need much of anybody's help. You're good. It's chiefly your eyes, I think, and that throb you get in your voice when you say things like, be generous, Mr. Spade. The character of Sam Spade was created in 1929 by Dashiell Hammett, who, more than any other writer, was responsible for the creation of that unique American vernacular, hard-boiled detective fiction. In fact, Hammett had himself once worked with the famed Pinkerton National Detective Agency, 
which had been set up way back in the middle of the 19th century by Chicago businessmen and railroad barons in order to spy on their employees. Although Hammett denied anything he had experienced while working at the agency ever informed his fictional character, he did say that Sam Spade was a dream man, one he conjured up as an ideal to which he had aspired while working as an operative. Spade first appeared in serialised form in the crime fiction magazine The Black Mask before being published as a novel in 1930. And as soon as it came out, the film rights were snapped up by Hollywood. Back in the early 1930s, each of the studios were pursuing their own distinctive brand of films. MGM was known for opulent melodramas, Paramount for sophisticated comedies. Orkeo was said to be so dependent on the musicals that Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers all but kept their receivers from the studio's gates. As for Warner Brothers, their specialty was hard-hitting gangster pictures. The Public Enemy, Little Caesar, I'm a Fugitive of the Chain Gang. It made sense then that they would purchase Hammett's hard-boiled plot. But what did not make any sense was that the tough-talking Sam Spade would end up sounding like this. You won't need much of anybody's help. You're pretty good. As a matter of fact, you're very good. It's chiefly your eyes, I think, and the throb that you get in your voice when you say, Oh, be generous, Mr. Spade. Although a faithful adaptation, this 1931 version flopped at the box office. But that did not stop Warners from having another go five years later, this time transforming it into a comedy. Sam Spade became Ted Shane. It was retitled Satan Met a Lady, and Betty Davis was cast in the title role. Uh, the lady, that is. <laughs> so you're the man I hired to protect me. Would you mind very much, Mr. Shane, taking off your hat in the presence of a lady with a gun? Puzzling as those alterations were in the comedy, Warners inexplicably swapped the black bird for a musical instrument, an 8th century ram's horn said to be filled with priceless jewels. Unsurprisingly, it also flopped. Which prompts another question. When John Huston was granted the chance to adapt and direct a new version, how did he manage to succeed where others had failed? Huston began his career as a writer, selling his very first play, Frankie and Johnny, before finding a regular position writing short stories for the respected publications Esquire and the New York Times. From there, he went to Hollywood, signing firstly with Columbia, then Universal, before settling at Warner's. It was there that he made his reputation, writing or co-writing such prestigious and Oscar-winning films as Jezebel, directed by William Wyler, and Sergeant York, directed by Howard Hawks, the latter of which secured Houston an Academy Award nomination. But it was the next writing assignment that changed his career. Released in 1941, High Sierra was adapted from a novel written by W. Orr Burnett, whose knowledge of the criminal world dated from his time in 1920s Chicago when Al Capone, Frank Nitti and Johnny Torrio all but ran the city. At the end of that decade, Burnett wrote The Furies, which, although rejected by a New York publisher, eventually hit the bookstores under the title Little Caesar. Both working in Hollywood, Burnett and Houston became fast friends, sharing interests in cigars, heavy drinking and gambling. And with the making of High Sierra, Houston learned from Burnett of the simplicity and importance of remaining close to the source novel while simultaneously recognising that film storytelling is very different from print. As it happens, Houston wasn't the only one to benefit from the production. Who are you? I'm Cranmer, Jack Cranmer. A copper, ain't you? I used to be. I resigned. I'll bet. I'm okay. You don't have to worry about me. 
Since when has Big Mac been teaming up with ex-coppers? I told you not to worry about that. Now, Mac wants you to start for California right away. That car downstairs is yours. Here's the keys. Now, here's your route and some dough. The sooner you get out there, the better. What's the setup? I don't suppose you ever heard of Tropico Springs? Well, it's a resort town. It's the richest little town in the world, they call it. Now, the hotel there gets all the top sugar. You're gonna knock it off. Am I, copper? Now, look here, Earl. Max spent a fortune springing you. You're working for him now. He calls a tune and you dance to it. High Sierra starred Humphrey Bogart. And while today, Bogart is best remembered as Rick in Casablanca, it was his performance as bank robber Roy Earl that proved Bogart could carry a picture. Houston wanted Bogart for the lead in The Maltese Falcon, but Warners held off on casting until they saw the box office returns from Ral Walters' gangster picture. They were strong, so Houston got what he wanted from the studio. And then Bogart gave Houston what he wanted from Sam Spade. So when it came to adapting The Maltese Falcon, Houston kept intact whole pages of Hammett's dialogue. But in directing, he kept up the pace by allowing no room for sentiment amongst the actors. Now, both you and the police have as much as accused me of being mixed up in the other night's murders. Well, I've had trouble with both of you before. And as far as I can see, my best chance of clearing myself of the trouble you're trying to make for me is by bringing in the murderers all tied up. And the only chance I've got of catching them and tying them up and bringing them in is by staying as far away as possible from you and the police because you'd only gum up the works. You getting this all right, son, or am I going too fast for you? No, sir. I'm getting it all right. Good work. Now, if you want to go to the board and tell them I'm obstructing justice and ask them to revoke my license, hop to it. You tried it once before and didn't get you anything but a good laugh all around. Now, look here. And I don't want any more of these informal talks. I've nothing to say to you or the police. And I'm tired of being called things by every crackpot on the city payroll. So if you want to see me, pinch me or subpoena me or something, and I'll come down with my lawyer. I'll see you at the inquest, maybe. As portrayed by Bogart, Spade is tough, genial, smart, naive, unscrupulous, cynical, and yet honest and honourable. In other words, while everyone else is in pursuit of the black bird, the only thing Spade wants is the truth. But again, justice is only a passenger in this vehicle. The real theme is avarice. And fittingly, the statuette turns out not to be what Bridget and her cohorts were hoping for. In a way, that anticipates another movie on which Houston and Bogart would collaborate seven years later. Haul off and pump you up chest and belly alike. Go ahead, but would you mind telling me what this is all about Don't first? Don't get anyways playing dumb. Well, I'll be. So that's where you're good to hit, eh, Dodsey? Uh-huh. And what's the trouble here? It seems like I accidentally stumbled on Dodsey's treasure. Accidentally? Why were you trying to pry up that rock? Tell me that. Because I saw a Gila monster crawl under oh, it. brother, I gotta hand it to you. You can certainly think up a good story when you need one. Okay, I'm a liar. There isn't a Gila monster under there. So you stick your hand in and get your goods out. Go ahead. In The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Bogart played Fred C. Dobbs, who goes to Mexico to seek his fortune as a gold prospector. But, as in the case of the Maltese Falcon, greed raises its ugly head, and in the end, all the efforts come to naught, which would turn out to be one of the recurring themes in Houston's films. Because, in 1950, he made The Asphalt Jungle, one of the all-time great heist movies, where the robbery is a success, but the getaway is the disaster. In other words, for Houston, the pursuit of material wealth is a fool's errand. The Maltese Falcon is often and inaccurately credited as the first film noir. The inaccuracy results from a crushing of chronology. 
With the Nazi invasion of France in 1940, American films were banned for the length of the occupation, which meant that by the time of liberation in 1945, half a decade of Hollywood films had gone unseen by French audiences. In 1946 came the deluge. In quick succession, critics saw The Maltese Falcon, Otto Premature's Laura, Edward Dimitri's Murder My Sweet, Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, and Fritz Lang's The Woman in the Window. In seeing them in such short order, two critics, Nino Franck and Jean-Pierre Chartier, noticed a significant shift in the style and tone in certain Hollywood pictures. In the August edition of Les Confrances, Franck wrote an essay, A New Police Genre, A Criminal Adventure, in which he observed, These dark films, these films noirs, no longer have anything in common with ordinary detective movies. Three months later, in the magazine Revue de Cinéma, Chartier followed up with his own reflection with an article called The Americans Also Make Black Films. Because The Maltese Falcon was made before all the others on that list, it has been conferred as the forerunner of the noir cycle. But noir is a mood, a style of storytelling best typified by its visual design. High contrast, chiaroscuro lighting, tilted camera angles and skewed perspectives. Now, if we were to go looking for any of that in The Maltese Falcon, we would have great difficulty in finding it. Yes, the movie is adapted from a classic Segway Noir, and it does centre around a hard-bitten detective, almost duped by a femme fatale. But its visual elements barely support the argument. Remember, Houston had learned from Burnett to recognise that film storytelling is different from print. Yet, while he retained the tone of Hammett's writing through the performances, Houston did not translate the chicanery into a visual idiom. With the exception of a few setups, the cinematography is quite straight-laced. For better examples of noir from around the same period, you're better off looking at a pair of Robert Siedmack pictures, Phantom Lady and The Killers, and another Fritz Lang movie, Scarlet Street. About the only extreme elements in Houston's film are terrific turns by two of the supporting players. Sidney Greenstreet as Casper Goodman. You're a close-mouthed man. Oh, I like to talk. Better and better. I distrust a close-mouthed man. He generally picks the wrong time to talk and says the wrong things. Talking something you can't do judiciously unless you keep in practice. Now, sir, we'll talk if you like. I tell you right out, I'm a man who likes talking to a man who likes to talk. And Peter Laurie as Joel Cairo. See, Mr. Speed, I'm trying to recover ornament that, uh, shall we say, has been mislaid. Uh-huh. I thought and hoped you could assist me. The ornament uh, is a statuette, black figure of a bird. I am prepared to pay on behalf of the figure's rightful owner the sum of $5,000 for its recovery. I am prepared to promise that, uh, what is the phrase, uh, no questions will be asked. In fact, so good are they, they all but steal the falcon, sorry, picture, right out from under Bogart's nose. But if the Maltese falcon did not kickstart Noir's visual scheme, which film did? Rose, 